Amen. I love that song. Uh, it's a powerful song, a song that we need to keep in our mind because it's so true. And we're glad you're here with us tonight. And if you have a copy of God's Word, look with me at the book of John chapter 2. The book of John chapter 2 as we continue our study in the book of John. John is the fourth book of the New Testament, and we're looking at chapter 2. So if this is your first time with us, your first time watching on Sunday nights, what we're doing, we're taking the book of John, looking at it verse by verse. And so because of that, we can take our time looking at some of the significance of things that normally we don't look at. And so tonight, we're going to be looking at Jesus' first miracle. It's a miracle you really wouldn't have expected. It's a miracle that if, if you didn't know what was happening, you would never have thought this was going to be Jesus' first miracle. And so in John chapter 1, we see Jesus beginning his ministry. He's calling some of the disciples already. And now we pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, con containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Let's pray. Now, Father, tonight as we open your word, Father, as we look at this first miracle of our Lord Jesus, help us to understand it. Help us, Father, to understand the meaning behind it and show us, Father, what we need to do to have the miracles in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, one of the most recognizable symbols in advertising in a company is the Nike symbol, the swish. In fact, it's more recognizable, they say, now than the golden arches of McDonald's. Most people don't understand, don't remember, the, really the origin of Nike. It began with an amazing partnership between two track and field stars, Bill Bowman and Phil Knight. Bowman was a coach at the University of Oregon, and he focused on designing the perfect running shoe. Knight was a former Oregon undergrad and track star, and, and he used his MBA to convince a company in, in Japan to make the shoe. And so their first attempt was in 1972 uh, on the feet of a man named Steve Prefontaine. And, and they passed out a T-shirt with his name on it because no one knew about this shoe. And so they had this T-shirt that says, who's Mike? 
And everybody in the Olympics was talking about who's Mike, who's Mike, and as he was running. And all of a sudden, as people started noticing Mike run, they started noticing the shoe, and the shoe sales took off, and almost two million. And then it skyrocketed when, when some person, you may not have heard of him, his name is uh, oh, Michael Jordan, decided to sign a contract with Nike and not another shoe company. And then Michael Jordan decided, hey, I want to design my own shoes. And all of a sudden, it really took off, and, and, and everyone wanted to have Nike. And then there was a, a war going on between the companies, who could get the best athletes to endorse their shoes. By the late 80s, Nike actually slipped out of number one. Morale was low. They were losing money. Advertising executives were grasping at any idea to try to get back that magic of bringing back sales. And in 1988, an idea came out with three words, three simple words, and they are, see, you know it. Just do it. And because of that slogan, and we laugh about it, but right after that slogan, they went to be number one again. Nike took credit for that slogan, just do it. But maybe they could be sued for plagiarism. Because 2,000 years ago, the mother of Jesus said the same thing to some servants. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Tonight we're going to be looking at Jesus' first miracle. And if you didn't know what it was, you would not have guessed this. I mean, think about it. If you were the Messiah and you had three and a half years to preach on this planet and to get people's attention, if you had three and a half years to show people that you are the Son of God, what would you do as your first miracle? Maybe heal someone. Heal a blind person. Heal a lame person. Uh, Maybe feed the 5,000. I would have gone with raising the dead. I I just think that's what you would do first. But Jesus doesn't do that as his first miracle. What he does is to do something at a party. I mean, of all the things you could do, why would you do it this way? In fact, if you were going to make up this story, no one would have made up this story. Reynolds Price is a professor of English literature at Duke University, and he wrote a book on the three Gospels, and he was looking at it from a literature standpoint. This is what he said about this story. He said about the Gospel of John, he said, this is not fiction. If you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, who would invent for his first sign as Jesus' career a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment? It is a sign of an eyewitness account. It really happened. You would not have made this up. I agree. No one would have sat down and said, okay, let's make up a story about Jesus. What's his first miracle? Oh, I know. Let him be at a wedding and turn water into wine. They would not have done this. I mean, his first miracles wasn't to save a life, but to save face. His first miracle wasn't to change the world, but actually to keep a party going. His first miracle didn't happen at the temple. It happened at a wedding. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Now, there are many ways, many things we can look at tonight on this. Number one is the importance of marriage. It's very important in the Christian faith. I mean, you go back in the book of Genesis. We see God created Adam and Eve in their first marriage, and now we see Jesus' first miracle at a wedding. Or the apostle Paul, as as he's writing about uh, marriage and our relationship with Jesus. 
Or read the book of Revelation. It talks about the church and the marriage of Christ and the church. And so this marriage images throughout the Bible. Marriage is important to the theology of the Christian faith. And so maybe that's why. Or maybe Jesus did it to show there's joy in a dark world. A wedding celebration was a picture of joy, especially in the first century Palestine culture. This was the ultimate sign of joy. And here's Jesus say, I come to bring joy. Or maybe the first in the Old Testament, it starts with creation. And here's Jesus beginning his ministry with an act of creation. Or maybe there's something about this story that points to who Jesus really is. So tonight, I want to look at this story. I want to look at the situation for this miracle. And then the sign of the miracle, and then finally the significance of the miracle. First, the situation of the miracle. Look at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, he says on the third day. Probably he's talking about after chapter 1. Remember how Jesus had that encounter with Nathaniel? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Maybe that's what he's saying. After the third day, meeting Nathaniel, he's going now to Cana, about eight or nine miles from Nazareth, to go to this wedding. He's on his way to this wedding. And, it said, and John says, he gets there, the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and the disciples were invited to the wedding. So the only people we know at this wedding right now is the mother of Jesus, Mary, by the way, trivia. John never mentions her name. We know her name from the other books, but not John. And probably John didn't mention her name because he didn't want people to be confused by the other Marys. All he says, the mother of Jesus. So we know Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. We know Jesus was there and the disciples. Not all of them because he hasn't called all of them yet. Only a few. And so they go to this wedding. We are not given the name of the bride. We're not given the name of the groom. We don't know anything about them. Probably they were family members or probably very good friends. Now, you have to understand something in first century world. In Jesus' day, the wedding was highly respected, and it lasted a long time. Usually, the wedding in the Jewish culture in the first century lasted a minimum of seven days. You thought Catholic weddings were long? Oh, my goodness. For seven days. My, my first wedding I performed was an embarrassment because the couple said, we don't want any music. Okay. And they said, I mean, we don't want any unity candles or anything like that. Okay. okay. And really, you know, your message, we want it short. Kind of like what you tell me every week. Uh, they said, we don't want to repeat our vows. We're, we're kind of shy. Do you know what's left in a wedding? Nothing. By the way, a legal wedding, can, this is the fastest legal wedding you could ever do. Take him, take her, took. That can be a legal wedding. So anyway, my first wedding, I, I, I did what they asked. I, I, I said, okay. So we did the wedding. As they're walking out, they're meeting the guests coming in. And they were mad at me and said at the reception, they kept saying, why was it so short? I said, because they wanted it. This is their, what they wanted. So in Jesus' day, you didn't have that. It was a seven-day event, a minimum of seven days. 
And then they come up with this problem. It's a serious problem. And so you have this wedding in, in Jesus' day, Jewish law. It always took place on a Wednesday. We know what day it started. It always started on a Wednesday. The wedding ceremony lasted for the next few days. And, and the couple, they did not go immediately on their honeymoon. They would stay around for, for one week, a minimum of one week. And what they would do, they would keep their house open for people to stay. And, and, and the, the bride and the groom, they, they would wear a crown and dress in bridal robe and, uh, to be celebrated. Uh, they were treated like a king and a queen. And this was a time of celebration. Now, you have to understand, in this culture, many people were poor. I mean, and so they, they, they spent all they could on the wedding for this moment of joy. And so in this particular wedding, something happened. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. In first century world, this is serious. This is an embarrassing moment. To run out of refreshment at a wedding was unheard of. It was considered not only humiliating, it was considered an insult. And not only that, it was considered the sacred duty to provide for the, the customers there. By the way, even today, if you go to the Middle East, uh, they are required by their culture to provide for guests. And so here, the provision failed at the wedding, and this was an embarrassment to the bride. It was an embarrassment to the groom. It was an embarrassment to everyone involved. And not only that, not only could this have been, not only was this a great social blunder, an embarrassment, you could actually sue the people. We think we have a lawsuit culture. You could actually sue the groom's family because you did not provide them what they deserved. And so running out of wine was, was a big deal in the first century. So it's not just a little of embarrassment, not just a, a, a little faux pas. It, this is a potential legal problem. And what do you do? Now, we don't know why they ran out. Maybe they were poor. Maybe more people showed up at the wedding than they had anticipated. We, we don't know. But we know this, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Why would she do that? I mean, maybe, and some people believe that she felt responsible. Some people believe that she kind of helped cater to this. Maybe it was her mistake. And she's just telling Jesus, I, I feel responsible for this. Maybe she, suspect, no, she was telling Jesus because she looked at Jesus and the other disciples and she's thinking, there's too many of us here. We went to an event one time years ago, our family, and as soon as I walked in, I realized there were not going to be enough food for us. So I told everyone, don't eat. Don't eat. James was a teenager. James, you do not eat. We'll, we'll go to a buffet afterwards, okay? I mean, maybe that's what she's doing. Maybe she's looking at Jesus and the disciples. This is an embarrassment. You need to help us out. Maybe she was just telling her oldest son, I got a problem. Maybe she was asking Jesus to go buy some. Or maybe she was asking Jesus to do a miracle. Maybe she thought, you're the Messiah. You can do something. Jesus' response, verse 4. He says, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, I, I know in the English language that sounds rough. You know, woman, what does it have to do with us? In, in Jesus' day, that was a term of endearment. Trust me, don't call your mom woman. 
it won't go over well. But it's kind of like the word ma'am in in our society. And, uh, you know, ma'am, it started out as, as yes, mademoiselle, and then it went from yes, madam, and then yes, ma'am, and, and then down in Alabama, we say yes, ma'am. And so it changes. So this word is a word used of affection. Jesus used it on the cross when he's talking to his mother. This is a word you use to show uh, that you care for someone. When Jesus talked to the woman who wanted to do a miracle, and Jesus said, woman, what do I have to do? Again, this is not an insult. But he has an interesting question. He said, woman, what does this have to do with us? Now that phrase is interesting because we don't understand it in English. Is a Hebrew idiom. It says, what to do between me and you. Here's what it means. It means that you and I are on two different planes. This is a word used to describe the demons when they're talking to Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying, what you have in your mind is completely different than what I have in my mind. What you're asking is totally different. It's too, we're not seeing eye to eye on this, this issue. What you and I have in common. So he's saying, ma'am, I I don't understand. What you and I have in common is is not this. And then he tells tells her why. He said, my hour has not yet come. In the book of John, every time Jesus uses the word hour, he's talking about the death of the cross. So Jesus is saying, I'm not ready to die on the cross yet. I came here to die on a cross. That's why I came. And you want me to focus on a wedding. He's telling his his mom, I'm thinking about my wedding at the end of time when I bring the church to heaven. But notice what Mary does. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Did you see any hope that Jesus would do anything in his answer? No. But Mary said, whatever he says, you do it. You see, Mary understood something we need to understand tonight. You need to take your problems to Jesus. Even though right now it appears that Jesus is not going to do anything, that is never the issue. The issue is we would always bring all our problems to Jesus. We're always bring our issues to Jesus and trust Jesus. We need to know even tonight that you can take whatever issue you have, whatever problem, no matter how big no, or how small, that there's no small problem that's too small for Jesus. And there's no too big problem for Jesus. We're to take everything to Jesus. So notice the sign in the miracle. I call it a sign because that's what John calls it in verse 11. He said, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana. Now that word is, means a miracle, but it means a miracle with a, with a purpose. When Jesus did this sign, it was pointing to something else. Here's what I want you to understand. We'll talk about this next, a little bit more next Sunday morning. Whenever Jesus did a miracle, the miracle is not the issue. The issue is something behind the miracle. Whenever Jesus did a miracle, we look at the physical healing. We focus on the physical healing, but there's something behind that. So Jesus is about to do this miracle of of turning water into wine, but that's not the issue. The issue is there's something greater behind it. That's what John calls it. He calls it a sign. It's pointing to something else. A miracle will point to a truth that you and I need to see. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 6. 
Now, there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish customs of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. In these homes, you had water pots for Jewish purification. Interesting enough, in this case, there are six of them. By the way, the number six represents humanity, represents not perfect. I think it's very important that John tells us that. The Jewish purification was extensive. Uh, in fact, the Mishnah, and we talked about that one Wednesday night, the Mishnah had 126 chapters with 1,001 verses on purification. In fact, they had special tracts on purification. They had a book 30 chapters long on how to wash your hands. You had to wash your hands a certain way. You had to dip your hands a certain way in the water. You had to hold your hands a certain way for the water to drip a certain way. There's a certain way to dry your hand. You had to do it perfectly or you would be unclean. These are the water pots used to purify yourself outwardly. And so this is the water that people would go and wash their hands. Get that image. They would stick their hands in the water and bring it up, and the water would run down to their elbows, and it was a certain way they did it. There were six of them. Remember, this is a big wedding. Each pot, about 24 gallons. And, and so you had about 120, 180 gallons of water there, and, and people would wash their hands. So what does Jesus say? Verse 7, he said, fill the water pots with water. Because people have been using it, they don't have all the water. And so Jesus gives a command. And by the way, the, the, in, the, in the Greek, it means uh, it's, a, it's, it's a command, but it also means for you to do it. He said, I want you to do it now and fill it to the brim. You got to fill it to the very top. And they didn't put jars on the water. They, they poured the water in the vessel and it was always to, to the brim. So there's no extra space to put anything else. So it's overflowing. Get that image. It's overflowing because it's to the brim. Very important to understand it's overflowing. So he does that. Verse 7, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. So they took these water pots. They filled it to the brim. This is the water pots that people have been washing their hands. They take a little uh, cup and they take it to the headmaster, the, the master of ceremonies, and for him to taste. He doesn't know where this came from. The servants know. And I can imagine their servants are saying, I can't believe we're giving him some dirty water, but he told us to do it. She said, whatever he says to do, do that. They have no clue. And now the master of ceremonies tastes the water. Verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, the servants had drawn the water new, the head waiter called the bridegroom. Now, I, I can imagine everybody's freaking out now that it's going to be an embarrassment. He said, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Master of Ceremonies was to keep the party going. He calls them over and says, this is the best of the best. You ever notice the world always gives you their best first and then it gets worse? That's what temptation does. That's what sin does. Sin will offer you the best at the beginning, what seems to be the best, to handle your gratification. But it has the painful results and the long-term consequences this miracle, Jesus is showing the best is always the best, always the best, as it continues on with God's hand. Do you see what Jesus did? Jesus used dirty water and cleansed it 
and made something new out of it. Because that's what Jesus does. He takes us with our dirty sin. He cleanses us and makes us something new. That's why Jesus came. That's why he went to the cross. But notice the significance to this miracle. You, when you read the, the story, you go back to what Mary said. Do whatever he tells you. That's the key. That's the key to the story. Now, did Jesus give any indication he was going to do anything? No. In fact, he gave an answer. You would assume he wasn't going to do anything. But she trusted him. Did you notice that water that was not turned to the wine to the jugs was filled to the brim? If they had filled it only halfway, the water would not have turned into wine. It had to be overflowing for the miracle to take place. What we said this morning is true in this passage too. Blessing follows obedience. Blessing follows obedience. What we have done, we've reversed it. We want God to bless us before we're obedient. When I get paid, I get my bills paid, when I get out of my debt, when I got money to spare, I'm going to start giving to God. You know, when I get my problems straightened out and I, I get my act together, I'm going to start going to church. When my spouse begins to act better, then I will be a better spouse to that person. Well, when they forgive me, then I will forgive them. And you know what happens in those circumstances? People don't give. People don't go to church. And marriages continue to crumble. And no one forgives. Obedience doesn't follow blessing. Blessing follows obedience. When you do obey God... And you do what God tells you to do. That's when God does miracles in your life. You know, there's so many people, they're looking for a miracle of God. But my question to them is always the same. Are you obedient to God? And usually they're not. Don't expect miracles in your life until you are obedient. And it begins by listening to Jesus and following him. I want you to notice, just very quickly, we need to be obedient even when you're not encouraged. Mary was not encouraged by Jesus' answer, and yet she was still obedient. Sometimes you may not feel like you're encouraged, but you need to be obedient. So I remember talking to someone years ago that they had a long-term illness, and they said, God may not heal me, but I will be obedient to him to the end. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not getting encouraged, but I'm going to be healed, but that's okay. I'm still going to be obedient. Be obedient even when you're not encouraged. Be obedient even when you haven't been with Jesus long. I mean, these servants had not even met Jesus, but they were obedient. You don't have to be with Jesus a long time to be obedient. As soon as you meet Jesus, start being obedient. You need to be obedient even though you've never seen a miracle. These servants had never seen a miracle of Jesus. In fact, this is the first miracle that's recorded. And to our knowledge, this is the first miracle Jesus ever performed. Now, I know there's some legends that Jesus did other miracles when he was a child, but those are legends. This is the first miracle the Bible says that he performed. So they had never seen a miracle. They didn't know what was going to happen to fill the, the, to the pots to the, to the top. They had no idea. 
be obedient forth when you don't understand the entire process. They didn't understand what they were doing. All they, they were told, just, just fill the pots to the brim. Let it be overflowing. This makes no sense. They want wine, and you're telling us to fill these purification pots. They didn't understand the process, but they continued to be obedient. And while they were being obedient, God did a miracle. And when it was all over with, verse 9, they knew who did the miracle. Jesus was the source. And verse 11 tells us that Jesus got the glory. And verse 11 says the disciples believed. Now, they already believed, but now they believe even more. They've seen the miracle of Jesus. When we are obedient, God will always get the glory. And people will come to know Christ. And God will use us. And also, Jesus will continue to bring joy in our lives. Stand and bow your heads for a moment. Every head bow and just examine your life and ask the question, am I really obedient what God has told me? Or, or is tonight you, you're, you're picking and choosing what you're going to obey God with? Well, I like that commandment. I'll do that one. But I don't, I don't like that one. So, God, I'm not going to do that. Tonight, will you make a commitment? I'm going to be obedient. If you're here as, an, as a believer, if you're watching online as a believer, will you make a commitment? I'm going to be obedient to what God tells me, even when I don't understand, even when I've never seen a miracle in my life, even when I don't understand the entire process, I'm going to be obedient to you, God. Will you do that? If you're here tonight or watching online and you have never given your life to Christ, will you be obedient tonight by giving your life to him? By admitting that you're a sinner, realizing you cannot save yourself, believing that Jesus died on a cross for you, was buried on the third day arose. By being obedient, by confessing everything, by giving him everything you have, saying, God, take it all. I just want you. If you're online and that is your story and you want to give your life to Christ, if you would text us the word today at 270-398-5005 and a minister will give you a call. But if you're here tonight, as we begin to sing and you've never given your life to Christ, if you just come to the front and talk to me or one of the ministers, or if you're a believer here tonight and you realize you haven't been obedient right now, will you say, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you no matter the cost. Father, we thank you so much for the miracles that you perform. Thank you so much, Father, for the joy you give us. Thank you so much for the blessings. But let us realize our part is to be obedient. And tonight, Father, let us be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen.